Yeah, so um, welcome to Health <laughs> Fucking Hell. Right, um, uh, wait. <laughs> I'm reading out the, um, the title as written. Yeah, yeah, just read yeah. it as written and then you're on a little blurb. Right, we'll go yeah, again. Do you want me to, because the thing, <laughs> you know what I did there? What did you do? <laughs> I flicked on the, on the chrome and I got that picture of the guy. So it's that name. <laughs> and I just lost it. <laughs> and he, uh, one set, I just see right, you need some time, man. You need some time. You take it. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, right, okay, right. Um, <laughs> uh, that is it, lost it. Absolutely lost it, right. Um, okay, so I'm doing uh, Health, Fitness and Success, your guide to winning at everything fitness-related. Your intro, I'll do my intro. I'll talk over the structure briefly, yep. and then we'll get into it. Right, so I'll just say health and fitness, episode one, and then you take off. Yeah, cool. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, health and fitness, episode one. Yeah, hi, my name's Ben. Um, I've got a background originally in computation. The title, Ben, the title of the podcast. Oh, oh fuck me. <laughs> fuck me. Fuck. You know what, this is, this is sheer. This is much harder than it looks. This is this is hard, yeah. yeah, yeah. Normally I'm fine. When I'm on my own, I'm fine. Uh, it's literally the first time I thought it was someone. So be gentle. Right. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Health, Fitness, and Success, your bi-weekly guide to winning at everything. Hosted by Bar- Marquis and Ben Tormley. Episode 1. That's it, man. Welcome to Health, Fitness and Success, your guide to winning at everything fitness related. My name is Ben Tormley. Um, originally, I've got a background in mathematics, so that includes a bit of computation uh, and physics. Um, but now I'm involved in fitness. I try to apply the science aspect to training and diets to really meet the needs of clients to get results efficiently and quickly while fitting comfortably within their lifestyle. So it's about training people to fit their diets and um around their lifestyle in a sustainable way that ensures they have long-term progress and it's about building good habits. Hi, my name is Mark um, I come from a strength and conditioning performance-based background. I myself am a powerlifter um, I've competed at world championship level and have won a Commonwealth Championship. Um, I'm currently working within professional rugby within Edinburgh. I've also worked uh, with the national side as well. Um, my main background is in um, the strength aspect of the sport, but I also work with heavily within speed, power, fitness, conditioning, and I also work fairly heavily within nutrition within the performance remit. Um, I'm coming from this as someone who uh, has quite a wide background of reading, is inter- interested in many aspects, and quite like... Um, spreading what I've learned to the general public. So this podcast is a vehicle for that and also to collaborate with Ben, who I think is a very useful person. Um, So the structure of the show will be, this is the first episode, so this is fairly loose. Um, If you have any feedback, comments, emails, um, send them to us. 
Um, we will have an email at some stage. Probably should set that set that up before the start of the show. Um, show structure is uh, we'll do a news section which will last for ten minutes. Um, we'll go into um, a topic of the week. And this will be a bi-weekly podcast, so be a topic of every bi-week. Uh, and then we will just finish up uh, with question and answers. Obviously, without having any questions or answers, it'll be pretty limited this uh, episode. Um, uh, and we also have a what we're reading, a thinking section. Um, okay, so let's begin the new section. Yeah, so um, the first thing I've been looking at this week in the news is um, it's just a study on fructose consumption. Um, so I saw a post about this today, actually, and um, the full text is, is available if you want to read it yourself. Um, but basically, this was looking at um, the a comparison between um, sucrose and uh, and high fructose corn syrup. So when you actually dig into the study, it's it's randomised, um, double blinded trial, and it was done on um, overweight and obese subjects between the ages of 25 and 60. So they were looking at um, the consequences of uh, having sucrose or high fructose corn syrup at about 10 or 20 percent of your total calories. Um, as a component of a, of a normal diet, so they were allowed to just um, to eat the way they normally would, but um, they were controlling for the percentage of calories coming from sucrose and high fructose corn syrup. Um, and what they found really was that um, there's no no real difference um, between these two things. Now, um, there's a lot of guys out there who've made a living from telling you that fructose is evil and that it, it makes you fat. Um, but this study it was done over 10 weeks and it found that there wasn't any, any difference in the arthrogenic, um, uh, sorry, arthrolipid uh, risk factors, um, and, and certainly not in weight gain. So they found that just substituting, uh, isocalorically, uh, high fructose corn syrup didn't make a, a difference in terms of weight gain, which is, you know, flying in the face of what everyone has been telling us for a while. So I think um, just briefly on this topic, we won't try to spend too much time on these topics, um, but this is kind of indicative of what you'll get quite a lot within the health and fitness industry and something you need to be aware of is you'll have people who are looking for sensationalist things are just try to stick out. So if they um, can demonize something, it's much easier to stick out rather than saying the standard quo is the way forward. Um, so this is kind of what you'll see within so the within – um, kind of the popular culture we have if, if it fits your macros um, which is basically just a calorie controlled diet which of course you'll be hearing for years that calories in versus calories out is um, how weight loss works and the Ben yeah so um, the thing is I mean obviously um, with if it fits your macros that unfortunately there's this sort of false dichotomy where you either exclusively live off uh, Pop-Tarts and, and whey protein or you only eat, you know, gluten-free, um, you know, sort of paleo-style foods. And, and the problem, I guess, is that when, when we talk about if it fits your macros, it's become quite a, um, a polarized topic because people seem to approach it from either one of those two extremes when really the whole point of it is is about a kind of balance, you know. Um, so no one's suggesting that you eat a diet composed, you know, that's composed entirely of, uh, you know, fructose-based uh, carbohydrates. You know, even, you know, even taking it to extremes, you probably could get away with that for, you know, a short-term um, diet. But 
I guess, I guess this study is just adding a little bit of weight to the kind of balanced approach to nutrition, which is saying um, food choices do matter, you know, in terms of the big picture. But whether or not you're getting carbohydrate from fructose or sucrose or, you know, or whatever, it doesn't actually matter so much, assuming that they're a relatively small percentage of your total calories. And you're not just eating a caloric surplus from, you know, drinking two liter bottles of uh, high fructose corn syrup based diet, you know, sodas. Like Coca-Cola, if they want to sponsor us, which is yeah, yeah. which is absolutely Yeah, our sponsors, Coca-Cola, <laughs> like give a shout out to them. And, and uh, I've got a yacht. And pop tarts, um, you know, pop tart fitness. Yeah. So. Uh, okay, so that, that's enough on uh, um, high, high fructose syrup. This will, these things will kind of be recurring themes uh, within this podcast. I feel, um, so we will be able to touch on it at a later date. Um, so next up, we're going to talk about something that did happen quite a while ago. Um, it's Kevin Ugar. If you if you follow. Um, it was in the popular press um, probably about six weeks ago now or seven weeks ago. Um, some guy called it Kevin Ogar from America who was taking part in a snatch event in a CrossFit um, competition. He uh, missed the weight backwards and as he dropped the weight, it um, <clears throat> caught on a stack of 20s that were sitting behind him, 20 kilo discs, and it shot into his um, lumbar spine and ended up severing his spine and the guy is now paralyzed from the waist down. Um, so I think where we're going to go with this conversation is first, obviously, sorry to Kevin. Hope, hope um, uh, your recovery goes as full as it can. And just would like to say that CrossFit kind of got demonized quite a lot in the in the press for this, but I don't think it was actually CrossFit's fault. It was probably more down to the, the way the competition space was laid out. And it kind of shows, um, in my opinion anyway, how... When something happens like this, um, if it gets into the popular press, it'll be very quick to be demonized. Again, a common trend you'll see. Yeah, so, um, I mean, from my perspective, the, the whole thing about that that incident was that, you know, CrossFit actually came out, for me, quite positively because the CrossFit community was there to support Kevin Nogar. Uh, after a very serious accident, they raised money for him. And so, although the, tra- of course, the training, um, side of things might be open to criticism, you know, there's certainly elements of CrossFit which I don't like. And, uh, and that's as much to do with the way, um, people approach it. Not, it's not necessarily CrossFit itself, but it's, you know, a lot of the, uh, people who follow CrossFit, it's, it's kind of what they choose to do. Uh, you know, their interpretation of it, it rather like, um, you know, religious zealots in many ways. But, um, but no, Kevin Ogar, you know, he, that whole injury, um, and the response from the community showed that there is a hugely positive element, which is that, that element of, of community, the, the support he received. I think you'd be hard pressed to, to find that in any other sport, you know. Um, so the way they sort of rallied together to, to help him through what is probably, you know, an incredibly challenging and, um, you know, harrowing experience. Um, I think that's incredible. The actual training itself, I think, I think there's certainly, like I said, criticisms that can be made, but, um, but I don't think CrossFit is all bad. Again, it's the same thing with, you know, diet. It's, it's not either CrossFit is evil or it's, or it's great. It's there's something slightly, there's, you know, there's a nuance there and there's, certainly a debate to be had about how useful CrossFit is for certain people. 
Sorry to interrupt. I think the best thing you can say about CrossFit methodology is that the elite CrossFitters don't train CrossFit. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all, you really, that's all I really think you need to say on the topic. Um, but yeah, certainly the, the CrossFit methodologies are something we can discuss at a later time and maybe as a topic of the week. But I certainly like to echo what you just said about the community. And I think it's something you struggle to find with quite a lot of um, like bodybuilding, health, fitness, and powerlifting. Maybe strongman to lesser degrees. It does have a fairly good community, but certainly powerlifting is like a, it's a sport where there's a lot of bitching, moaning um, that goes on. And I just think that CrossFit came on uh, came across extremely well in that incident. And again, our, our thoughts go out to Kevin Ogar and his family. Yeah, I mean that was um, it's an awful accident. Of course, I think I think you can see that things go a little bit too far when uh, people start saying, "Well, this is what happens when you do CrossFit; you end up, uh, you know, seriously injured." I think that accident could have happened, you know, under a whole range of different circumstances, and really, you know, it uh, wasn't. People die every every year in sports like rugby, boxing. Exactly. I mean, there's yet to be a fatality from CrossFit, so. Yeah, I think exactly. it certainly gets a lot of bad press for injury rates. When in fact, if you actually look at the epidemiological evidence, it actually has a lesser rate of injury than something like strongman. Yeah, exactly. Well, strongman, you know, is actively putting you in situations like with uh, you know a lot of the, the carrying um, events and, and you know the stones where your spine is not in a very safe position. No. So you can definitely you can definitely argue that's it, a risk. Anyone who's done strongman or strongman training will attest to that fact. <laughs> Um, okay, so the next two topics are going to be on the on a fairly uh, big topic in nutrition, and certainly one that makes a lot of money. And the first one, they want to be both on antioxidants and reactive oxygen species. And um, the first one is a, a meta-analysis. So when someone does, uh, sorry, so a systematic review. So when someone does a review of scientific literature. They can do a literature review, which is kind of a discussion through the topic where they'll search for all the relevant data and they won't do any statistical analysis. They'll just kind of have a narrative of where the field began and where it is at currently. Um, there's a meta-analysis where they will um, perform a statistical analysis based off cohorts of studies. And there's this thing called a systematic review where they will actually systematically try to go through all of the literature. So every relevant um, search engine, they will search for um, a study that's relevant to what they're searching for. Um, so the study we're going to be talking about is um, is uh, produced by a body called the Cochrane Foundation. Uh, the Cochrane Foundation are based in medical sciences, and they perform systematic reviews on topics in medicine as a way of um, kind of um, pushing the science forward and trying to get definitive answers. Because the best way to get a definitive answer in science is to perform something like a systematic analysis on where there's a large body of evidence. So the, the study in question is entitled um, Antioxidant Supplements for Prevention of Mortality in Healthy Participants and Patients with Various Diseases. Basically, they performed a, a systematic analysis on um, 26 trials that included 215,900 people, 52 trials that included 80,000 80, participants, and another set of trials that includes 112,000 participants. So in all, they had about 400 to 450,000 participants within their um, cohort. And what they found that was so they looked at all-cause mortality, so heart disease, um, like 
uh, stress, any 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 kind of um, natural cause of death they looked at, they found that people who um, supplemented with um, antioxidants were in fact four percent more likely to die pre- prematurely than when when compared to controls. So I think um, we'll discuss the implications of that for um, your antioxidants. Ben, nutrition is your thing. Do you want to chip in? Yeah. So in terms of um, in terms of the whole antioxidant supplementation thing, I mean it's clear from the literature I've read that um, you know that the, the picture isn't as simple as saying uh, ox you know oxidation is is bad. Obviously, it's not. Um, in general, it's 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 basically the degree um, of uh, of oxidation that, that is the the issue. So um, when you've got things like reactive oxygen species, um, you can either say that you know they're bad or they or they're good, and there seems to, again it seems to be like a polarization. So either you'll you'll just uh, you, you know you'll say okay, well I'll, I'll mega supplement with. Um, with antioxidants to um, to kill off as much RS as possible, um, or you will try and stress yourself out to an extreme again with the idea that you're going to have some sort of adaptive response and, and therefore you know um, create a beneficial adaptation. So the idea of, of hormesis comes into play there. Um, so it turns out that neither of those approaches are really quite right because. Um, it seems to be that you want a physiological level of ROS. So in other words, you need some formation of reactive oxygen species. So you need um, some sort of adaptive response. But if you push it too far and you have too much ROS, um, that's that's bad. And if you have too little, that's also bad. So it's kind of, <laughs> it, it's a weird situation that you're in, but essentially the take-home message is that you, you want to introduce a certain amount of use stress, so in other words, beneficial uh, amounts of stress that produce a positive um, adaptation. So that can be dietary, so with caloric restriction. It can be with training because, um, uh, you know, weight training, uh, exercise, um, you know, produce uh, a similar sort of stress response. Um, and it can be a number of different things. So when you when you add in antioxidants, what they do is kind of hamper your ability to create that beneficial adaptation. Um, so it's not really surprising that that study that that review um, found that to be the case because you know physiologically um, it seems quite clear that you need a certain amount of stress to to promote longevity and health, especially the mitochondrial health, uh, which is you know what. What keeps you um, what keeps you going into old age? Um, so I think yeah, I, I, certainly all the literature I've seen really agrees with that. And practically, um, you know, if you lift some weights, if you um, if you maintain mitochondrial health either through periods of calorie restriction, uh, or even you know, there's some argument that you can do this with a, a low carb diet, although I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. Then you know you, you're going to be fine. It's just if you're constantly stressed out, if you're overtraining all the time, or equally if you're never introducing any stress at all, then you know you're probably going to die, basically. <laughs> yeah, on a, on, a, on a long enough timeline, the survival rate is zero. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think this again, I'll probably be the guy that comes in with common themes all of the time. But when you look at two viewpoints, and you get one extreme on end. One extreme, the other end. Truth is probably in the middle somewhere. Yeah. Um. It's never extremes don't generally bear out in the world. Um. 
you so, see that time with, with supplements, especially. Cer- cer- certainly, um, like kind of what we spoke about before, with the the fitness and health industry being big on uh, dichotomy and big on standing out, and it's easy to stand out if you're the guy who pushes this mentally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> than it is if you're the guy who says follow a calorie constricted diet, everything in moderation, <laughs> do what the government says. Uh, but which you'll find out that that advice is probably not too far away from uh, what you need to be doing. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy as it is. Um, however, hundreds of experts have come up with that advice. Um, <laughs> so the, the next uh, topic on the news section is Ben. So I'll let you speak away. Yeah. Um, so I, I've kind of been um, thinking a lot about um, the RPE scale and and how to integrate that into. Um, the training and diet aspects of um, of what I do with clients and, my, and myself. So RP, um, meaning uh, rate of perceived effort uh, or rate of perceived exertion. And um, so I've had a lot of success lately um, just by introducing RP to, um, to my clients' training programs and my own and getting away from the fixed percentage kind of approach to lifting, which, you know, has its place uh, in training because, you know, um, that I'm certainly not going to say that there's no need to ever specify weights or percentages when, you know, when dealing with athletes or any sort of competitive lifting. But, um, but with ordinary people, um, especially intermediates, I think the RP scale works incredibly well because it's a way of getting people to focus more on, you know, being mindful of their own training, understanding you know, their own limits a bit better and, and pushing themselves when they need to and dialing back when they need to. And I think this has been one of the big revelations for me in the last few months is realizing that even total beginners to, to weightlifting um, can make some great progress if they just listen to uh, their body and, and just go by RPE and push themselves more than they would have done if they'd just sat down and worked out, you know, what their one rep max was using some spreadsheet. Yeah, so um, on this, just to clarify some points, um, RPE stands for, stands for Rate of Perceived Exertion. Um, it's a scale used in sports science that determines how hard something was. So if you give something 10, it's maximal. So if it was a lactic acid training session, if you give a 10, you should be puking. If you're not puking, it's not 10. And <laughs> zero is pretty much rest. Um, so this kind of idea, although not completely his, um, is championed a lot by a guy called Mike Tushner. Yeah. And he, he runs a uh, website training system called Reactive Training Systems. And so I think what quite a lot of people don't really grasp is Mike used um, a muscle lab, which is uh, uses a dynamometer, which you attach to the barbell. And it, it detects the change in speed and force output. So you give it the weight, and it'll work out the force output, rate of force development. And more importantly, for what Mike does, it works out the velocity of the barbell. So he kind of quantified in a way, like in a 10 on a squat, a 9 on a squat, an 8 in a squat, you'd be moving within these ranges. Yeah. So he actually has like a quantification of what he does within that system. And I would encourage anyone um, highly to go read his stuff. He's a very intelligent man, extremely strong lifter, and I believe to be natural and lifting incredible weights for a natural. Um, just to kind of, within the 120 class, um, Mike has squatted, I believe, by 350 or 360, 
um, raw. He's bench pressed 230 raw, and he has deadlifted 365 or 370 raw. And as a 120 kilo lifter within the IPF, which is a drug tested federation, and it's someone um, who I've been around training for quite a long time, so I have a fairly idea, decent idea anyway, of um, picking out like trends, people who are natural, trends who are not natural. And it's not to say I can pick them out, it's just I have a bit of a understanding. I, I believe Mike to be natural, like truly, which um, makes him probably one of the strongest lift, uh, natural lifters on the planet at the minute. So it's obviously, and he's produced uh, great results with many athletes, uh, powerlifting athletes, so it's obviously a very good system. And obviously Ben's having great success with it and his clients. Um, so so what are the, some of the, the aspects of the training that you like, Ben, that kind of worked for you in a bodybuilding standpoint? Well, um, yeah, so so just yeah, getting away even from the, the whole strength training aspect, yeah, just, just in terms of um, you know, training for aesthetics or training for muscle mass, I like RPE because typically when you when you're training just for hypertrophy, you're always going to go for something in you know the eight to twelve rep range is pretty standard. Um, and you know when you actually select weights to use for you know for your working sets, um, the RPE scale works nicely because instead of saying okay, I'm going to work out what my twelve rep max is for you know tricep extensions. And then go in and, you know, do a percentage of that. You just say, well, okay, on the day, um, do I feel like I could get a couple more reps with that set? Okay, I can. So that's an RP of eight probably. Um, and if you, t- you know, if you're targeting uh, an RP of nine, you know that you probably need to go a tiny bit heavier to hit that. Um, and in terms of the actual benefits of doing that, I find that staying around an RP of nine or, or just shy of a 10 introduces enough um, stimulus for, for muscle growth and, and strength gain, but it, it doesn't introduce so much fatigue that you, you under recover. So the idea really is to, you know, train to get as much volume in as possible and stop just as you're getting to the stage where you're introducing a lot of fatigue. So it's a similar idea to, um, to what you probably seen if you've ever read about my reps which are like an extended set or a cluster set where you try and stay just short of um, a failure um, so you maintain the greatest activation of, uh, of motor units possible without introducing the sort of systemic fatigue of going to failure so that's the idea that I try and implement with uh, with my training and in practice it works quite nicely um, for strength and hypertrophy yeah, it's certainly um, a training system that I've not actually used myself or with any of my athletes or clients. Um, although I can see that it is massively f- um, fruitful for the people who do use it. Um, but where, from my perspective, where RPEs, just from hearing you talk, um, it seems that it allows people to understand the training process a little bit better. Yeah. So you understand that what what is a maximal effort. Yeah, I find um, one of the biggest kind of things that I bring to the table is that when I come into like a group of athletes or I come in with a client, um, often they don't really know what a maximal effort is in terms of strength. Um, they they won't know what actually like a maximal ten feels like. They won't know what like a maximal five look feels like because people always tend to err on the side of caution. Yeah, exactly. So they'll have novices, intermediates, so a guy with a who've been training for like three months with a one fifty squat, they'll have them doing like three sets of five using a percentage approach. 
So what you'll tend to find, um, if you train long, if you train for a long enough time, um, you'll find that you can you can get strong just by going as heavy as possible or going for as many reps as possible every week on quite the long timeline. Um, I did it myself probably for about five years. Yeah. Um, Alistair, one of my lifters who may be listening, hello Alistair, um, he's kind of trains himself now. He would use that training for about eight years and he got up to 320 kilo squat for any Americans lifting at 700 pounds and 200 kilo bench press, 440 pounds and a 340 or 330 deadlift, but he's version on 340. So like a 725, 750 deadlift. And he's a 21 year old kid. Um, 22 now. Uh, so like the, the and I, I know I could ream off like 20, 30 lifters who have done that process for about four or five years. Um, but like you're saying with the fatigue, what I'm finding in my current training is that if I can do the big set, like I, like this morning I did 200 kilos, five sets, five on the back squat. Like I could have done a set of 10 or 12 on it, but what have happened? What have happened is I would have broke down with fatigue and would have started like shifting off. Like I've got a bit of a shift in my squat, so I would have started favoring the strong hip, and I would have broke down. So kind of what I'm coming towards is more of like a multi-set approach and more frequency and something like RPE. Our their active training system is sort of is based on that sort of principle. So it's quite yeah. useful. Yeah. Well, that's exactly. Well, yeah. I think um, it keeps you honest as well because I found that when I um, when I do something which focuses on um, high frequency style of training, like I, I gave the sort of Bulgarian style lifting a try recently, and in six weeks I went from I'd had I'd had a, uh, an extended layoff before this so just to put it in perspective a lot of those strength gains won't necessarily be you know muscle or whatever it was probably a lot of neural um gains but um after having a bit of a layoff i started training incline bench three times a week and i was working up to um not a not a, an actual one rep max but like a what you'd call a daily max which is probably like an rp of nine in practice or maybe a 9.5 not quite maximal effort but kind of the heaviest weight that you can lift without uh without really grinding the weight so again it's going back to what you said about the bar speed earlier um and i got up to um an incline bench of 125 for a single which for me was um was pretty good um and that was in a six-week period having started off the cycle at around 100 uh which admittedly wasn't you know wasn't my max before but uh, it was where i was at, at the time um and what i found was that going by the RP scale on days when I felt like complete crap and I dragged myself in the train, I being honest with myself, if I'd gone by how I felt before going in the gym, I would have cut things short or I maybe wouldn't have gone for a PB, but there were some weeks where I set a PB, you know, two or three times that week uh, when I felt like absolute crap. And just going by the RP scale and the bar speed, I forced myself to just be more objective and say, okay, today I'm actually, you know, I'm actually pretty strong. Um, and if I'd gone in with fixed percentages and just done the work and left, I probably wouldn't have pushed myself as hard. Yeah, I, I, from, again, coming from my perspective, something like an RPE would work for me in the opposite way, as it would stop me from pushing to the point where I get fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, so you tend to get different kind of personalities and different kind of people that come to lifting and I tend to deal well certainly within um, strength sports you'll deal with the sort of overly zealous lifters who yeah. want to push who <laughs> want to push and who want to push I think RPE and also percentage based lifting 
I think um, percentage-based lifting is extremely useful if you've reached the point where you're close to as strong as you're going to get. Yeah, definitely. Um, because at the end of the day, if you have a 1RM of this, there's a certain amount of workload or a certain amount of progression that you need to engage with to up that level of fitness. Um, so something like an RPE, like, it, yeah, it works. It obviously works for Mike Sitchner, who's far stronger than me and far better than me. Um, but where I would kind of... I don't know. I'm much more uh, at home with the kind of periods of training, like 12 weeks towards a goal, and these are the workouts I need to complete, and this is how I get from A to B. Um, sort of training the Ed Cohen, Kirk Kowalski, pretty much any powerlifter really does. I mean, Mike's pretty novel in this approach. Um, so what I would say is, like, although it's a very good training system, it's certainly not the only way to skin the cat. Um Oh, definitely. Um, and I think, again, just going back to what you said, I think linear progression pretty much is, you know, it works and it's one of the best ways of getting stronger and bigger. It, I think the only reason I, I quite like RP is because in general, it tends to work out as the same thing. You know, like in general, if you follow RP and you really listen to yourself, you're probably going to be, just be doing linear progression anyway. Yeah. It's just on, on those weeks when you probably need to dial back a bit, it can keep you honest, you know. Uh, although, like you said, in your case, it might work the other way. <laughs> yeah, stop me from dialing up too much. Um, okay, so I'll move on to my bit. Um, Trying to make, make it quite so long. Um, so uh, there's a book I read. It was a psychology book. Um, very useful, very interesting. And the name of the book was The Chimp Paradox. And it was produced by Dr. Steve Peters, who um, is a who was a psychiatrist, but he ended up um, working with the British cycling team. So he basically in the book um, he puts across that he has um, he has a theory of mind. Um, and it's not massively detailed. If if you go on, we'll we'll, ch- well um, I shall link the URL in the show notes so you can come and have a look at kind of what it's all about. But basically. The crux of his theory is there's three kind of actors within your brain. There's the chimp, which is your um, irrational brain, so it's kind of your reptile brain, or just slightly above your reptile brain. And it's basically your emotional centers. Um, so when something annoys you, and you fight or flight, then you get angry and you're uncontrollable, that's your chimp. So that's your emotional brain taking over. And when it takes over... Your um, the other part of your brain, which is called the human, so that's basically your um, cerebral cortex. That's your rational um, aspect of the brain, um, and that's kind of the bit of the brain that works from day to day life when you're kind of in a settled state, um, and that's basically your personality most of the time. Um, so it almost it almost treats it like a kind of two brains, like there's a there's a like a Mark chimp and there's Mark. So, like, when I'm, like, irrational, uncontrollable, like, crying uncontrollably or angry as hell or, like, any kind of, um, any any kind of situation you've been in where you've not been in control or you've done something stupid and later you completely regretted it, that was your chimp taking over. Um, and then there's the computer, and the computer is basically your um, hardwired subconscious and so the way he, he in the book he says the computer acts ten times faster than the chimp, and the chimp acts two times faster than the than the the human. So basically the book kind of lays out for the first kind of third or half of the book lays out this kind of theory of mind, 
how it works, um, how the various different things piece together, and then it's full of coping strategies um, with how to do this. Uh, th- this has been used um, like on his uh, website here. He's got some couple of quotes from Chris Hoy, the mind program that helped me win my gold medals, Victoria Pendleton, Steve Peters is the most important person in my career. Like from talking um, from some people who have worked or either read the book, worked with some athletes who are fairly emotional or have talked to some athletes he's worked with. Um, I think where it comes into play is some people have issues where they can't really control um, their emotional brain. So you'll know some people who are fly off the handle really quickly. They're extremely um, uh, kind of confrontational, aggressive, or they don't deal with pressure well, or they, they kind of break down. It gives um, gives those kinds of people um, like really useful tools that they can actually bring into to play. So what, one of the tools it uses is called exercising your chimp. So let's say at work someone does something that pisses you off. So in the book, um, Steve recommends rather than doing something stupid at work, you go to someone you trust and for 10 minutes you just rant. Don't have them in a – just have an audience. Rant at them, get everything off your chest, and then after about roughly 10 minutes, you'll feel much better about the situation, and your chimp will go back in his box. Um, I don't know if it's really something we can um, discuss too much since you've not read it, so I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll just um, I'll just dismiss that out of hand. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, uh, no, no, that sounds interesting because um, I'm a little bit familiar with um, you know the, the whole nervous system having different structures, you know, some of them <clears throat> sort of going back to, you know, um, sort of reptilian or, you know, um, sort of the, you know, the evolution of the nervous system basically is, is quite, you know, is, is the human brain is, is built up from various systems, some of which are, you know, very old. Um, and then some of them are newer, I guess. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense in, in terms of that, that there's, there's sort of different components to the way we think and, and, and that the brain itself has got some, you know, elements which, are, you know, go back to, um, you know, reptiles and, and some of the, the structures are newer, you know, you know, in the mammals. And, and I guess I guess I can see that there would be that sort of um, difference in response um, coming out of the, the, you know, structures like that. But um, I guess... I guess that is interesting because I can see that um, I can see that in, in different people I know I can think of examples of those sorts of different responders um, and I guess I guess stress response is a huge thing um, I don't know if that was one of the things he touched on in the book but I think the way you handle stress in general is it's got huge implications for uh, for health um, as well as the way you train um, so I'd be interested to, to have a read of that book actually. Um, just for my own part, it's an extremely useful book. Um, it's it's not really one that I found um useful as like uh as like something that I took um like take home lessons from that I could use in a day to day sense, but it's certainly one that um kind of elucidates quite a lot of things and people's kind of psychology how they work and. I really encourage people if you if you do read around areas to kind of read around psychology, because um, it does give you 
Uh, it just give you like more of an insight into how people work and why people do certain things. Um, certainly, I'll be bringing up quite a lot of that in the future when we go to this topic. Um, but definitely check it out. Like great book. Um, okay, so we're going to move on to the the main topic, um, which we may we'll have about twenty minutes for. Um, we'll try to keep the show to about an hour, um, not too much more. Um, so we're going to go on to <laughs> uh, a topic that came out in Reddit on Monday. Um, oh, it was Sunday, even, I think. Uh, it's basically um, a study. I'll try to find it. A study entitled Nutrition and Health, the Association Between Eating Behaviors and Various Health Parameters, a matched sample study. I think uh, Ben's probably looked into this a bit more than I have, so if you'd like to jump in. Yeah, so um, the first thing you've got to say, I guess, is, um, you know, it's a cross-sectional study. So um, with all of this, you know, with all of these cross-sectional studies, you've got to remember that it's difficult to nail down uh, whether or not, you know, you have causal factors, uh, you know, causal relationships, um, or whether or not there's just association. So, you know, if someone is vegetarian and they happen to have poor health, um, you don't know if it's the dietary habits um, or, you know, maybe they actually, you know, consume a vegetarian or vegan diet because they're unhealthy and they think that that will, you know, ameliorate their symptoms. So um, that is one of the things I would say, uh, you know, just to take any results you get from studies like this with a pinch of salt. But basically, um, they did this cross, cross-sectional study and uh, they found... Um, that you know, vegetarians tend to have a lower BMI, uh, consume alcohol less frequently, which I guess you can again tie in with the idea that vegetarians are probably more health conscious, and so a lot of the reason for following that diet is you know maybe because of existing health issues. Um, but the, the key thing that they found was that a vegetarian diet was associated with poorer health, and specifically higher instances of cancer, allergies, mental health disorders. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it didn't look very good if you, uh, you know, if you're vegetarian. Uh, I think um, just to kind of put a bit of some numbers on it, I'm just kind of looking at the table of results here. Um, so for the, the statistically significant um, factors, the first one's allergies. And vegetarians were 30.6% um, as sufferers. Um, carnivorous diet rich in fruits and vegetables, 18.2%, so an order of 12% less. Um, carnivorous diet rich in meat, not so rich in meat and vegetables, was 20.3%. And again, carnivorous diet rich in meat, or diet less rich in meat, sorry, was the last one, 20%. And carnivorous diet rich in meat was 16.7%. And um, so I think like at least 10% less likely to be all- allergenic, but then that could be um, Maybe people who have allergies could be lactose intolerant. Yeah. Um, they could the, the, quite a lot of animal products cause um, allergies in people, so that's probably to be expected. Um, urinary incontinence, uh, vegetarian, two point one percent, and um, meat eaters were on the whole more likely with uh, diet rich in fruit and vegetables, carnivorous, four percent, and carnivorous diet rich in meat, or less rich in meat, two point seven percent. And carnivorous diet, rich in meat, 6.4%. So again, that can maybe related to the protein content of the diet, and maybe having some some effect on kidney function, um, which gets banded about loads. And I'm sure we'll come across at some stage. Um, cancer, pretty much 5% vegetarian, 3.3% in 
carnivorous diet, rich in fruit and vegetables, 1.2% rich in meat, and that, and carnivorous diet, rich in meat, 1.8%. So that's quite an interesting statistic. Um, both diets that were higher in fruits and vegetables, namely the vegetarian and um, carnivorous diet, rich in fruit and vegetables, actually had uh, um, much higher prevalence of cancer within them. So that's that's quite interesting. Um, mental illness, uh, vegetarian, 9.4%. Carnivorous diet, rich in fruit and vegetables, 4.8%. Carnivorous diet, rich in meat, 5.8%. And carnivorous diet, rich in meat, 45 So I kind of fucked that up a little bit. Um, Any time I mentioned carnivorous diet, rich in meat, was meant to be diet less rich in meat. Um, so I think some interesting discussion points there. Um, so certainly, maybe if we begin with the the urinary incontinence one and kind of your your take on that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would have picked up a few things, I guess, um, from this, but it's just for me, I, I guess the issue I have with with all of these studies in, in general, um, you know, is it's being cross sectional. Do we know that, you know, the vegetarian diet was the cause of that problem? Or again, is it that someone who is health conscious because they're suffering with something like that, they, they look for, you know, um, a solution in terms of diet. So for instance, um, you know, they, they start eating a low protein diet or, you know, they, they eat a vegetarian diet to try and ameliorate the symptoms. So, uh, you know, that, that would be my first sort of question. Sure. I think you would struggle um, looking at dietary and nutritional um, literature to come out with any kind of causation. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that, for me, is what kind of negates the process of nutrition and uh, dietary science. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's it's extremely difficult to look at. If you try to look at it at a cellular level or a metabolic level, the the complexity when you look at a system-wide, sort of when you look at the human body, how something interacts with it as a whole, um, when when you talk about complexity, it really doesn't get any more complex than that. Um, so, so the 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 I don't think that really the the current science or the current nutritional science really isn't up to the task on that level. And um, when you when you look at um, epidemiological studies such as this, I mean, it's only one thousand three hundred twenty people, which may sound like a lot, but in science, that's practically nothing. Um, when we were looking at um, basically habits, or basically we, we look at vegetarians versus carnivores. These are the trends, like, and then we this correlates. But then when we get this correlative study, like Ben saying, we can't really establish causation. So it's where we go from here. That with nutrition is the problem. Um, do we take out a group of five thousand people, another group of five thousand people, and just control everything in their life and change their diet and see how it pans out for the rest of their life? I mean, if you're looking at a, a, like a methodology, at a method, if this is a methodological problem, you need a large enough population. So for something like this, you're probably talking thousands of people. You're, you're looking, um, you're looking to control extrinsic factors. So you're looking to control their dietary intake, their day-to-day life. Like it, you're asking too much, really. Um, so it, it's really quite a difficult. Um, it's quite a hard task to ask of. Um, like scientific excellence in this field. Yeah. Uh, I think that's where it falls down quite a lot. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of these studies I've seen, a bit like that infamous protein study, you know, in terms of the way they've been 
done, you know, the methodology was pretty sound, you know, the statistical analysis was all right. No real technical issues. It's just making conclusions from that is, is always going to be, it's always going to be suspect for a number of different reasons. But I mean, one thing I find interesting about this is if you look at, again, if you look at that figure, um, in table three, um, the incidence of mental illness, uh, specifically, you know, anxiety and depression was, was much higher in the vegetarian, um, sample. So the, the thing that I would kind of maybe, well, again, this would be pretty, uh, tenuous as well to even make this lead, but you could even, you know, suppose that someone in, who had a lot of anxiety about food or had a lot of, you know, problems associated with, the way they eat, you know, the food anxiety is a huge issue. You could argue that perhaps they would be leaning more towards a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet simply because, um, you know, they had an existing issue, not that a vegetarian diet necessarily <laughs> promoted um, anxiety. Uh, apart from uh, an aversion to taste, but that's what it's yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, again, I think when you look at, uh, like, coming back to spectrums, when you look at any kind of extreme or any kind of niche dietary practice you're probably dealing with like a different sort of psychology um like someone who chooses to be like a strict vegan over someone who just eats what everyone else eats you're talking about different psychologies completely yeah definitely um so i mean it's such a multifactorial problem as they tease out um what causes someone to be a vegetarian or what causes someone to be a strict vegan and it's not necessarily saying it's a bad thing. I mean, maybe it's a genetic thing. Maybe it's a gay thing. I mean, gay people are biologically wired to be that way. So yeah. maybe vegetarians are biologically wired to be that way. <laughs> oh, but, like, seriously, though. I mean, may, like, maybe some people have an aversion to killing animals. I mean, when yeah. you talk about, um, like, what we do biologically is we divulge in the different areas. So... Um, mutation and like variety and survival and like a normal like frequencies within the population and survival of frequencies is what causes evolution. Yeah. So since we're basically um, not subject to evolution anymore, things such as homosexuality are much more prevalent. Like they're probably at much higher um, percentages than they would be if we were like tigers or. Lions, they, they still exist within those kind of species, but like probably, uh, uh, probably, I don't know if I'm talking shit or not, but I'd be willing to bet that there'd be lesser frequencies than they are in kind of a diet where we don't die off. Well, at least in the Western um, culture, we don't die off because of reasons of starvation. We don't die off because of war. We don't die off because of natural predators. So uh, I, I don't know. I'm probably um, going off too much of a tangent here, but. No, I mean, you're right. I guess, you know, epigenetics comes into play. You know, we're a combination of genetics and environment. So, yeah, I guess you're right. It's, there might well be some sort of, um, you know, genetic uh, factor in terms of, you know, what, what pe sort of diet people eat, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I found interesting as well was that <clears throat> only 2.2% of all of the participants in this study actually consumed vegetarian diet so you know it, it's kind of even taking a thousand people like you were saying it's actually quite a small number of them were actually vegetarians so again you could argue that if you did this study on a larger scale a lot of these things might even out and you might not see 
the same sort of difference in terms of you know health issues. So and, uh, that's kind of the reason why um, this kind of study needs to be done with such large numbers when you do an epidemiological study such as this. It's like when we looked at the Cochrane study, they had uh, 450,000 people, and we're talking about a thousand people here. Um, so it's like, say we got our pool of vegetarians from an old person's home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that's like we're, we're talking like one percent of one thousand three hundred twenty. You do the math on that. Um, yeah. I'm like, I can't, I'll have to get my calculator right, but yeah, I'll assume that that's a low number. Yeah. So we're talking about twenty-six people. I mean, like that's <laughs> re- realistically they could have went and got twenty-six old people who were vegetarians, and that was their sample. And, and a study like this, um, I, I don't know if they kind of went for a homogeneous population where they went for healthy adults between 20 and 30. Typically, that's what they would do. Um, but yeah, so like that's why these studies need to be done on a larger scale. And there's not really anything meaningful that we <laughs> can really bring out of this study. Yeah, well, um, it's just funny to bash vegetarians at the end oh, of the day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, morons. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, of course you're not morons. Don't, don't send me a hate mail. Yeah, well, I mean, they are, but yeah, you're right, they're not. <laughs> but um, no, I guess I guess what I found interesting as well was, you know, when they, when you don't control things like caloric intake, it, it's going to be really ropey talking about any sort of condition. Yeah, of course, you're, of course. You're going to be affected by that. And I guess you could even, if you took this to an extreme, you could look at, you know, comparing people who eat a low-sodium diet with ones who don't and, and then talk about, you know, various different health conditions. And you might find out that, People who ate a low sodium diet had, you know, chronic hypertension, and you could say, oh well, you know, that's because they eat too little sodium. But of course, that would be nonsense because they probably eat a low sodium diet because they've already got chronic hypertension. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think uh, basically all we're saying is this study's nonsense, and uh, you know, pretty much. But it does make <laughs> great uh, cannon fodder. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the problem is that people take these things and they use them. Um, you know, to support whatever view they they want. You know, so if you if you're really anti-vegetarian, you're just going to say this is proof that all vegetarians have got you know are mentally ill and you know going to suffer health problems. And if you're a vegetarian, you're just going to you know rip it to bits and say, well, look at the people who eat all the red meat. You know, they've clearly got health problems too. And you know, it just doesn't doesn't give you anything productive, like you said at the end of the day. Yeah, and again, go on <laughs> the psychology. Uh, this is kind of uh, it's known as a confirmation bias. So, someone like Mira Ben, who like to like lift weights, or we like to um, lift weights in a certain way, we might look at a study that says, "Oh, that backs up my idea," so I'm yeah. correct. Um, whereas we looked at something that was contradictory to our viewpoint, we'd probably go, "Yeah, I'm not too sure about this study. Let's delve into the problems in the methodology." Um, so everyone's got um, biases. There's some really good books that we'll discuss um, going forward that have some uh, have some great things to say on these things. Yep. Um, so I guess we can do the Q and A section now, seeing as we don't have <laughs> to. Uh, yeah. So uh, to the question and answer section. Um, Beard yeah. care. I got a few questions on how to maintain, uh, you know, a plush looking beard. Um, this shoot away as a, a former owner of a beautiful beard. <laughs> I've unfortunately been struck down by the razor of death. Um, yeah, I, I wish I could grow one, but uh, you know, I'm 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 not obviously not a real man. So you need more uh, tests, bro. And yeah, I do. Yes, that's. <laughs> <one>. <laughs> 
you know, supplement, some vitamin T and some mineral S. Yes, and, if, and uh, yeah, some creatine. Oh, never, not even once, bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess uh, that pretty much wraps up the show. Um, so hopefully going forward, we'll be a bit more structured and we'll be a bit more plush, but this is kind of our first toe in the water. Um, any questions or um, queries you may have for the show, send them for now to speedpowerperformance at gmail.com. Um, thank you for listening. I'm Marquise signing um, off. Yep, and I'm Ben Tomei signing off as well. Um, yeah, have a great day. Have a great week. Be awesome at everything. Goodbye. <laughs>